All right. Just making sure. Yep, we're good to go. Um, okay, so welcome to the Friday Q&A. I'm Mike Winger, a pastor here in uh, Southern California, trying to help you learn to think biblically about everything. And the first question we have today comes from some issues that have been going on in my own life, uh, in my own ministry a little bit recently, and comes from you guys in the comments section asking this continually. I, I recently put out a video explaining why I was not going to try to sue or go to court with Joel Osteen. Because and you guys can watch that video for the full story on that. Um, just you know, just type my name and Joel Osteen in a search engine, and you'll see it. But um, but I decided not to not to try to push things with him because of this copyright issue with a, a video of mine that was critiquing him. And people commented and they asked the following question because Scripture weighs in on this issue, and I did not talk about this before. So, you know, isn't there a scripture that says not to take your brother to court, uh, says James Wright, or Roadcaster says, why would you have considered this in the first place? First Corinthians 6 surely condemns going to law if you consider him a brother. Can you explain when it is appropriate to go to court? Uh, Dave Flanagan says, good call, Mike. Scripture does not tell us, uh, does tell us not to take each other to court as believers. Uh, Francois Allard said, it's against the will of God to bring another Christian to court. And... Uh, Joseph Folsom says, Mike, have you considered the scripture about not taking a brother to the unbelieving court? We may doubt his conversion, but even in your own mind, your own words, he may be a true believer. Therefore, you can't take him to court. So the issue we have are two issues, two very separate issues. One is my particular conduct with this Joel Osteen situation, which I, I'm not taking him to court. Just a reminder for people in the comments, my whole point was I'm not, <laughs> but but rather than defend myself there, I'd rather focus on an analysis of 1 Corinthians 6. It's something I've been meaning to do for a while. So let's look at the passage and let's ask, what does it mean? How does it apply? When can a believer go before non-believers to, you know, to report a crime or some, something, you know, with another Christian involved? And when should they not? So let's dig into this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, or 1 through 8. And, um... This, uh, this this passage is this the first question I'm answering today. When should a Christian sue another Christian or or not to? Then I'm going to take 19 questions from you guys in the live chat in our ever-increasing in length Friday Q&A. <laughs> okay. Dare any of you, says the scripture, dare any of you have a, having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And I'll, I'll just mention there's a list of sinners, you know, the people who are engaging in ongoing sinful behavior who won't inherit the kingdom of God. The last one on the list relates to the first pass, this passage we were reading, extortioners, those who are extorting others. Okay, um, I just read the passage, but now I want to go through it in more detail. So what we have is, you know, just to get clarity on this, a basic big picture idea that, that um, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying, hey... I don't want you suing 
Christians suing Christians in courts before the unrighteous. It's there's several wrong things with it. So for one thing, uh, you're not going before the saints. So so Paul's initial issue in First Corinthians six is not that a believer would have a case against a believer or that they would pursue it in a way that says, "Hey, I want recompense. I want that money you owe me. I want that property you took from me." I want you to fulfill the contract that you've that you've cheesed out on. Like that's entirely appropriate. Paul's upset initially that they're doing it before unbelievers instead of before the saints. Now in in Roman law, here's a super quick background because this could be a, like a whole long study. In Roman law, they would allow people to to do this themselves. They could seek their own reconciliation within their own communities. This was not a problem. The Romans respected this. The Jews did this all the time. They had rules where they wouldn't go before the Romans if it was an issue they could cover and deal with themselves. And that was considered an issue of the competence within the community. We are a community. We are real people, and we are co- we're competent. We can handle these issues within our own within our own structures. Um, so he says, "Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's you and me in the future, not now. In the future, we're going to judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? These small matters, these trivial things." Like, can't you guys handle this? Why do you have to bring in secular judges? Aren't aren't there competent people amongst you as Christians who can handle this? This is kind of the reasoning Paul has. Do you not know that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life? So Paul's argument in verse 2 is like, is not just, hey guys, is, this looks bad to the world. When the world sees Christians fighting, it, now it's true that it looks bad, but that's not the point in verse 2. The point is this. You guys, God has given you this amazing thing and that you will be ruling and reigning with Christ. You will participate in the judgment that's coming as ones who are doing judging. You will judge and over the angels and the world in the future. So how can you not deal with issues today? It, see what it does is it dishonors the honor that God's given us in Christ by making us co-heirs with Christ. When we run away from our Christian community to deal with these issues um, outside. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? There's a debate over how to translate that passage. This is just randomly New King James Version. Um, Other ones put it differently. The the basic idea, though, is um, like, why are you you asking for judgments amongst those who are least esteemed by the church? Now, it's also good to know historically that Roman courts had almost two levels. We kind of do two in a loose sense today. You have like, you know, criminal stuff. Like uh, somebody um, violence, you know, someone commits murder, somebody, uh, you know, rape or something like that. Then you had like more like small claims court or civil courts where you would go and you're saying, hey, you didn't pay me for the job I did. Now, those those smaller courts, it was it was more frequent from historical sources, uh, at least according to commentaries I was reading on this. It was more frequent for the rich to drag the poor into those courts use their money to manipulate the courts, hire better lawyers. Does this sound at all familiar? And then they could um, basically abuse and defraud people through the court. So we're not necessarily finding that the courts are these highly respected environments. At a higher level, there were more more like regiments about how law was going to proceed to make sure justice took place. But at the lower level, at the level of the things that Paul's talking about, it was more abuses going on, more manipulation. This is why in James, he complains. He goes, isn't it the rich who drag you into court? Isn't that interesting in James, he says this, isn't the rich the ones who drag you into court? You see, it was those who could use those lower courts to manipulate, to be able to defraud. So the court was actually a, a um, in many cases, 
the court was the tool by which you would defraud your neighbor. So some of these lawsuits were frivolous and wrong lawsuits. And then those who had more influence and money were able to use them. So he goes, why are you, why are you going there instead of dealing with it yourselves? I say this to your shame. It is, is it so that there is not a wise man among you? Now, this, this, this means that Paul's expecting them to, to appoint a Christian. Somebody who's a godly person who can make a decision on this. He goes, isn't there a single wise person in your entire community, your Christian community? This doesn't mean it has to be the senior pastor of your church who has to decide these issues. It just means find a wise believer. The qualification is they're a Christian, not that they have to be the pastor or even an elder for that matter. They're a wise believer who the other parties can look at and say, I respect you, I respect your judgment, we'll explain what happened, and you decide and we'll honor that. That's, that's what Paul's asking for. This is the marks of a cohesive community who cares about each other and who respects the calling that God has put upon us. Um, so, but brother goes against, goes to law against brother. That sentence says it all. And that before unbelievers. You're brothers and you're fighting each other and it's before unbelievers. It's shameful. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Okay, just the nature of you going to law against each other shows there's something that's broken down in the Christian community, which is supposed to be love and following Christ and holiness and righteousness. But here you are dragging people to court before non-believers. Like this shows that there's a failure in the, in, the, in, in the Christians and in their obedience to Jesus and in the sincerity of the things they claim. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? That's an interesting phrase. We're going to come back to that in a minute and ask, is this saying I should... Always just, um, even if I'm being sued, I should just give in. I should just always give in. Now, I gave in with this Joel Osteen situation for reasons I explained, several reasons. I think it was like four or five reasons. But what's this saying here? Um, let me let me point out um, here just a few more things before we go to your guys' questions. Um, Paul's ultimately calling people to act like saints in the issue of, of these lawsuits. Um, the lawsuits themselves are relatively trivial cases, relatively trivial cases. Again, Roman law allowed for this. The Jews did it. Um, the government did not require them taking these types of things to court. But we also have it in the word defraud. Okay, he says, why not let yourselves be cheated? You do wrong and you cheat. These, this word is a description of the behavior that Paul's talking about. He doesn't mean all lawsuits of all kinds. He's talking about a particular kind. He doesn't mean all um, court, I should say, court actions of all kinds. He's talking about a particular kind. And it's in this word, cheated or defraud. Um, it's apostereo. You can see now this is, this is the Greek up on your screen right now. I can make it a tiny bit bigger. There we go. Apostereo. Um, and this, this, the basic meaning of the term, and, and, and its meaning probably in this context, is to cause another to suffer loss by taking away through illicit means. Rob, steal, despoil, defraud. These are examples. So you could, you could hold back the wages of an employee. You don't pay them. You could steal something from them. You could uh, steal them in, the, in a business way where you like, didn't give them the thing that you promised. That sort of thing. You could defraud them where you trick them into like a financial scam or scheme. These are all the types of things. And um, another possible definition is to prevent someone from having the benefit of something. Um, again, this is like, say, you're breaking a contract or, or you know, not giving them something that is their due. This seems to be in the realm of financial abuses. So, it's, so what I'm suggesting here is that Paul is not saying, and this is really important, he's not saying that Christians should not go to court and go to law 
when another believer is physically vi violent towards them, uh, rapes their, their sister, murders someone that they know, someone who claims at least to be a Christian. I don't go to the church for those issues. This is where Romans 13 comes in, right? In, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's talking about like sort of financial, at, at least at least frivolous and many financial lawsuit type things. And in uh, Romans 13, Paul's talking about government and how government bears the sword and that's not in vain. Both of these are true. Paul supports the idea that to punish the evildoer, the government has this sort of like authority and God honors that and God has given them that. So you should bring them in. So this is this is why, you know, when I, you know, gear, get a report of, of say child molestation, you know, the first call is the cops, right? Like I'm not like, well, let's handle this in the church. Let's have an arbitrary, let's, let's see if we can appoint someone wise to arbitrate between these two people. You know, there's been an issue of molestation. Can we reconcile? I'm like, uh, call the cops. You know, this is easy. This is where some churches have failed. They find out, and you guys know the stories, they find out about um, something happening that is that is not, oh, he didn't pay me my wages, right? But but rather like this this stepfather was molesting his, his stepdaughter and they don't call the cops and report it, right? Instead, they, they do weird things. So this sometimes happens and this happens not just in churches, it happens all over the place. That would be a mistake. This is talking about these financial type issues. Um, so let me tell you an example of, of how this happened in our lives. Um, so we have a family member that was that was basically brought into financial scams from people, and he's he's just a prime target for it because of his he's certain things going on in his in his in his head and stuff like that. So he was brought into some scams, and one of them was from a guy in his church. And so this person, you know, positioned themselves in the life of this family member that they might take their money and invest it in these wild. Um, real estate schemes and they totally failed right they they ended up like upside down with these massive loans that we found were like from russia somewhere and they were really not healthy and not good and it was like a financial literal disaster like is he going to go bankrupt now it was a big deal well we we worked especially my wife worked to try to fix the loan issues and we got them into we traded those out for more stable loans and did all that kind of stuff so that everything's at least okay but we brought this to the church because this person's, they're members of the same church. And the way the church handled this was great. The church cared. They didn't care about lawyers. They didn't care about all that. They cared about the truth of the issues. At least this is one wonderful story, right? This is not a horror story. And they pursued the truth and they brought in everybody and they interviewed them and they shared the different things. They, they really tried to bring full clarity and understanding. They offered the, the man like, hey, here's steps we want you to take because we think you've really wronged these, this person. And he rejected those steps and wouldn't do them. And so he was eventually excommunicated. He was brought out of that church. But the cool thing was this. This is probably what would never have happened in a court. When this was being dealt with amongst the elders, amongst the leaders of the church, they found out that other churches in the area had the same problem with the same guy. He was going to church to church. He was utilizing that um, community as an opportunity to, build, to find sort of weak people to bring into these real estate scams. And they didn't work. Now he thought they were going to work. Of course, I'm sure he did, but they didn't. And, and he was just causing people to lose all kinds of money. I think one person may have lost a house. Now it would be difficult in court to deal with these things and prove them and all that other stuff, but at least the wisdom of the, um, and maybe someone did bring him to court beyond that. I don't know what else happened, but at least this happened. The churches were then able to say, Hey, our community will not allow you. Our communities will not allow you to be taking advantage of other people here. 
we're we're putting a stop to this. And so we appreciate that. We thought it was handled well, and it was handled in a way that honored, I think, honored Christ. Now, some are going to not like that. I, I am skeptical that things would have gotten gone much better in an actual court before unbelievers. I'm skeptical that the end result would have been great, uh, to be honest. Now, I'm, I'm also not taking my issue, my issue with uh, Joel Osteen to court. But the sad thing is, is that I would very much like with Joel Osteen to reach out and say, hey, let's let's bring in a wise believer that you trust, right? Who can arbitrate between us and say, hey, let me hear both sides. Hey, Mike, here's where I think you're wrong. Joel, here's where I think you're wrong. Mike, I think you should do this to bring restitution. Joel, I think you should do that. That would be fine. I would totally accept that. I don't want to bring it before non-believers. One of the reasons is First Corinthians. Although it's an issue that they didn't deal with. Because Joel Osteen's not robbing me of money, right? When they, when Osteen's uh, church requested the money from the video, all the ad revenue, which doesn't go to my pocket anyway, it goes to the ministry, doesn't affect my paycheck at all. But when that, um, when that request had gone out and Osteen wanted, or Lakewood Church wanted the money, I didn't care. I didn't even say anything. It was just a financial issue. I'm whatever. I'm not. I'm First Corinthians six. I'm not going to worry about it. But when um, Osteen decided to have the video removed entirely. Now it's a different issue. It's silencing. I feel it's silencing ministry, which is, which is a different kind of issue, isn't it? Than something like defrauding. So that's where I would at least consider pushing forward because it's not the same issue. Now, let me just say last thing, boy, I, I feel like I should have done a whole teaching on this, but last thing, I guess this is uh, a whole teaching. So here in first, uh, first Corinthians six, there's this phrase, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Here, I've highlighted it for you on your screen. Some take this to mean Christians never go to court before non-believers if the other person even claims to be a Christian. You should rather suffer wrong and be defrauded. I don't know that that's actually what Paul's saying here. I, I'm inclined, I could be wrong, guys, but just take this as my idea that you might consider. I'm inclined to think that there's a contrast here. He goes, instead of you causing wrong, right, you should be the ones suffering wrong because that's what holy people do in the midst of an ungodly world. Christians are the ones going, hey, we may be wronged, but we will not wrong others. You know, we will not be overcome by evil, but we will overcome evil with good. That this is a general attitude of like, hey, I'd rather be godly and righteous and serve Christ in my life in a way that is so holy. That, that I may be wronged, but I will never turn and wrong another. I don't think it, it's the why not rather suffer wrong. I don't think this is a, um, you can't take this issue to court because he, he, he also advocates for them taking it to the church court, so to speak, bringing it before the, for the, uh, a wise Christian to decide. Well, that's not them just suffering wrong and never, never, uh, dealing with an issue. So there's a balance here, right? There is, you know, what Jesus says, turn the other cheek. If a man wants to sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak also. These are, of course, not life-threatening issues, not criminal violence, not that kind of thing, right? We're, we're talking about someone who wants to abuse law against you. It's like, try try to just avoid those things and make sure that you do not cause wrong. Anyway, I think it's complicated, I guess, is the bottom line. The basic idea, though, is uh, Christians should honor the name of Christ by trying to handle these things as family within the family when possible. I would not say a Christian can never go to court against a non-believer and people too quickly throw these things out. If someone's suing you into the ground where you're not going to have food to feed your kids and you're like, well, I'll just suffer wrong. You also have a responsibility to protect your family. So some of these things have to be balanced out. 
All right, we'll go to your guys' questions right now. Um, that's at least my thoughts on 1 Corinthians 6 and how I apply it at least to that situation with Joel Osteen. Um, and I'm just loading up the questions. Just a moment, y'all. Thanks for being here, by the way. This Monday, if you guys didn't know it, this Monday is the next video in the Women in Ministry series. I'm very excited to see it. I've been getting a little bit of pushback on Twitter from a scholar who I had I had critiqued. I don't think she's actually seen my critiques. I think that she saw someone's tweets about me, believed that that was the whole story of what I said, and then responded, which was, and yeah, Megan May. That's how it is. Um, I don't usually critique people, their work based on someone else's tweets about their work. <laughs> that doesn't seem very wise, but it happens. Um, okay, so Mike Grigas has a question. How can I do work for God to receive a reward, but not be seeking to put myself first, such as in Luke 22, verses 24 through 30. Thanks for your ministry. I kind of struggled with this too when I was younger. So Luke 22, 24. Let's look at that, that section of scripture. And uh, thanks, Mike, for your encouragement. Okay, verse 24 through 30. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Notice, they want to be regarded as greatest. And this is important for my point here amongst men, amongst each other. Which one of us shall we consider the greatest one of us? They're worried about clout before man. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the uh, one who reclines at a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus' example of don't, don't look for this, this high position in relation to other people. Come to them in relation to them to serve them. You are, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Isn't that interesting? That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So at the same time, here's a balance, at the same time as Jesus tells them, be one who serves, he then like projects forward this discussion of a future kingdom where they're not serving, they're reclining at the table, right? The, the analogy is, are you, who's better? The one who reclines or the one who serves? Oh, the one, yeah, but you be the one who serves. But there's a future time where you'll be reclining at the table. What we're to do is change our attention from this life and attention people give you and clout that they give you in this life to the, um, to the high place that we will get in the future from God and the respect we get from God. So instead of looking to man for an estimation of my, my rank or position, I look to God. And instead of looking for it to be fulfilled in this temporal life, I follow Jesus as, as, as humbling myself waiting for exaltation in the future. That, I think, is the full story. But what we do sometimes is we think that it's, it's always right to, to, um, to think lowly of yourself. Um, that's probably the wrong term here because that, that implies, I mean, we should always think, we should think soberly of ourselves. I don't know if it entirely is lowly. We should behave as though we're low servants of others. And we should think soberly of ourselves, not down on ourselves, but, but cl with clarity. I'm but a servant in Christ. I'm just one who's washed and clean. But there's those of us who, like myself as a, at a younger age, felt like I was doing service to God for love and gratitude. 
And when I thought more about the fact that one day he would reward me for the things I did for him, it almost felt like it somehow took things away. Like it somehow devalued. As though I was doing it for the reward and not for the Lord. But let me ask you this, Mike. Are you? Are you doing it for the reward or for the Lord? You know, because one step, even if you were doing it for the reward, you're doing it for the future reward, the eternal reward. That has value. That's something Jesus told us, store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. But there's another side of this, which is um, when a parent rewards their kid with something, the kid can turn their attention to the reward in a way that like insults the parent or they could look at the reward and they can love and, and appreciate their parent even that much more. And I think that that's, that's the thing to do is remember that this reward that God brings us is into his relationship with him, into his kingdom, into you know being heirs with Christ. It's all relational, all that we get. I, I hope I'm making sense to you guys. I've been thinking about some of this recently and I think it's pretty powerful stuff. It's all relational. So when you work for God to receive a reward, you're doing it not merely for the reward. It's not like it's a paycheck and you and you just you walk away and you're like, thanks, boss, and I'm going to live my life. Rather, it's more like a fellowship. It's more like a, a connection that, that you've, you've said to God, I care about your kingdom, your eternal things. And he goes, well, I will have eternal things waiting for you. Keep serving me. Keep honoring me. And it won't take away from anything. Um, so I think it's a glorious thing. All right, Fierce Nile Blood Squad has a question. Oh, I for, oh, Sarah Zimmerman, my assistant. I forgot to put up the. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna start taking. Put in my notes that I have to put up the thing. I won't do that again. I apologize. Okay, so this is question number three, and I'm put my hands up here so my assistant can more easily find these spots in the video where we change questions. Um, so. Question three, Fierce Nile Blood Squad says, Hi, Pastor Mike, do secret churches in countries where Christianity is illegal contradict Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33? Um, oh, interesting. Okay, so I was thinking this was going to be about whether they're, you know, because they're breaking the law. But, you know, obviously we have scripture that tells us, you know, that this is good. Daniel's an example of this. They say, don't pray. And he's like, I'm going to pray and I'm going to do it in public. Uh, but your question's different. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who's in heaven. So um, I, I guess the application you're getting from Matthew 10 is, hey, you have to be open in, in, in entirety with no qualifications, open entirely about and public about your Christian practice and faith in every way, which would include when you gather, you gather always in public. When you gather, there's no secrets. If a cop's like, where's your church gathering this week? You're like, right over here, sir. If you'd like to arrest us, please do. I think that that would be an overstretch. And, and part of the reason for this is, well, that's not the context of Matthew 10. <laughs> um, but also, Jesus didn't do this. Jesus did things secretly all the time. Uh, he, he would secretly gather with people. He would take his disciples. He'd take off. He tells them if they're persecuted in one town, flee to the next. There's a sense in which um, self-preservation of the Christian who's being persecuted is generally a good thing, but they do have to be willing to say, yes, I, I refuse to deny the name of Christ. So if, if someone comes up to you, gun to your head, hey, deny Jesus, and you're like, I, I refuse to do that. 
that that's what you know can you dodge a bullet though can you grab the gun and and <laughs> can you run the other way can you do other things yes but you you must not deny christ you must acknowledge him before people so I think this is about a fundamental, I will not give up my Christian faith no matter how you persecute me. I think that's what Matthew 10, 32 and 33 is about. I will always hold to who Christ is no matter what you do to me. It does not mean I will always give you open access to every Christian. I will not work to avoid persecution where I can in other ways, like Paul being let out through a window. Right? Was, was, he, was he denying Jesus when he was being let out through a window in the book of Acts? To avoid persecution? Not at all. That was wisdom. But when he was brought before court and they were like, we're going to kill you. And he's like, I'm still going to proclaim Christ. Do you see the difference? It's about our proclamation of faith, not about us um, walking headfirst into persecution at all times. There's a time to walk headfirst, but I think more often than not, it's not the time. And that was the case for Jesus' life. He usually avoided things like that so he can continue preaching. When the time came for the cross, he walked forward. So I think we have to use wisdom be led by the spirit in those things question number four number four here um it says is rap is true rapture theology is it true excuse me that rapture theology did not exist before the 19th century and it's relatively a modern interpretation patrick i'm going to give you my current thinking on this so just so you guys know this means that <laughs> It, 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 sometimes in my head, it feels like there's a file system, right? And some files I haven't opened for a while. And I'm like, what was in that file? It takes me like 10 minutes to just go, oh, yeah. So my basic understanding is this. And, and I may, maybe I'll, one of these days, I'd like to do a video on the rapture. This is super far in the future, like years out, because it's not that big of a doctrine to me. <laughs> um, but, but it's not there yet. So from my memory, the accusation against the doctrine of the rapture is just what you said there it's hey um and people made this this doctrine up the rapture nobody said this before the 19th century it's like this dispensationalist thing it's like this american thing and before the 19th century nobody in the church said it um the the problem with this criticism i think is that it uses the term rapture to only refer to pre-tribulational pre-tribulational rapture of believers seven years before the second coming. Now, if that's the case, it's easier to say that it's a newer thing. I'm not confident that it is, though. Um, I often, I've found this, and, and this is my caution, this is why I don't want to comment too much on this. When people make big claims about history, they're often false. <laughs> they're often oversimplified and false. And I see this over and over again. You see, the Bible, you can open up and read it and you can double check the context. But history, you're just taking people's word for it because chances are you won't do the work to see if it's true or not. Uh, you're obviously asking. I haven't done the whole work. I'm a little skeptical that nobody ever had this claim, you know, before that time. But I also have a problem, which I've just mentioned, is that if you think of the word rapture as only referring to the timing of the rapture, seven years before this tribulation, then I think you've got a problem. Because the very nature of the rapture is this idea that believers are caught up in the air to be with the Lord. And that seems to be a very, very early, you know, Christian belief, not only supported in scripture, but also found, I believe, in the church fathers. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've read specific comments I, off the top of my head. I don't recall. So I, I would say I tentatively think that that's a very early belief. The timing, however, is a different issue. But how much do we know about the eschatology of the early church? This is another issue. How much, like for instance, pick a church father, Origen, what was his eschatology? 
right? Chrysostom, what was his eschatology? Clement, what was his eschatology? And a lot of these guys, we don't really know. In many cases, they were more like premillennial. But then, um, you know, not necessarily pre-trib. I'm not saying that, but they, they believed that the millennium was a future real coming. Uh, Papias believed this. And if, if memory serves, Eusebius, who's like, comes like 300 years later, he, maybe 200 years later, he mocks Papias, Papias for this. And he's like laughing at him. He was kind of an idiot. He thought there was like a literal thousand years. But what we're saying is that it does go back very early. The Didache, uh, this about 95 AD church history document suggests that there's like this premillennial type view, not necessarily pre-trib rapture, but, but the thing is, we don't know what they thought about when the, when the catching up to be with the Lord was. So I think that this is a bit of a red herring, that this claim of, oh, well, it's not historical. I'm, I'm interested in it. I'd like to see it further supported. But it only deals with the timing of the rapture, not the very idea that there is a catching up to be with the Lord. And I just want to make sure those two different issues are handled separately because one seems to be very solid and the other one seems to be very much debatable. There's my, there's my short answer on that. Um, okay, we're going to go to the next question. This one is number five coming in from Sophie G. And she says, Dear Mike, I've become anxious about the thought of an eternal torment in hell. If that's the punishment for our sins, wouldn't it have been best for the unbelievers never to be born? Um, so let's, let me, you know, I've, sh I've shared this before and I'll share it again. Sophie, um, and th this is just generally for my online ministry. I, I don't handle this online ministry exactly the way I've, I've handled teaching before that. I mean, I started to, when, at least when I first started teaching, if I was unsure of an issue, I would teach whatever my church group taught. I would just default. I'd say, I don't know, but, but you know, this is what, you know, this is what has been taught within Calvary chapels. I'm just going to share that. And I felt like that was the safest thing to do because I am within a Calvary chapel environment, you know, at least at the time. And the, um, the thing I, I realized as, as my online ministry grew was how much of a responsibility I have to teach good things. And I can't just default to like, well, Pastor so-and-so said this, so I'll just echo that. So I started checking everything. And this meant that certain topics became sort of, I, I sort of go off limits until I can really research them and really get to the bottom of it in case, I just want to have a very, very high standard for how much I have to know about an issue before I tell you guys what to think because I'm having a big impact in such a huge way, it intimidates me, okay? So all that to say this, I'm going to do an in-depth study on the topic of hell after I finish the book of Hebrews, after I finish the Women in Ministry series. <laughs> We're talking like at least two years out. I will do a serious in-depth study on it. So for now, I'm just going to grant the that um, your question, right? Hey, let's say that our understanding of hell is eternal conscious torment. Wouldn't it be better if people were just never born? Um, it, this, is, this is something that the phrase comes up in scripture. It would have been better that that man had not been born. That phrase comes up. I don't know how literal it's being used. Even Jesus uses it. Hey, um, it would, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the specific time he uses it. But anyway, there's, there's times where it's being used. And those statements, I can't tell if it's hyperbole. Or if it's very literal, like actually it would be better if that person had not been born. I don't know if that's hyperbole or if it's entirely literal. Like this is a true analysis. 
It would be objectively better. And here's why I have a hard time with this. Because existence versus non-existence is such a massive chasm. Like you exist now. If you didn't exist, would that be better for you? I mean, there wouldn't be a you. How, how do you honestly and act, act, accurately measure the quality of you not existing versus you existing? I mean, you might think it's a complete wash, but just existence itself is amazing. Is it really better, even if you're suffering, is it, even, is it actually better to not exist? Is that truly objectively true? And I'm on the fence on that. I'm not sure that's true. But here's the second and probably more important consideration. What's better for the person in hell is not the ultimate question. They are not the protagonist of reality. And so it's even if it's not better for the person in hell, like for their experience, obviously not. I mean, they don't want to be in heaven exactly, but they don't want to be in hell. But if that's what true justice and true holiness brings, and it brings glory to God through him punishing sin, right? if that's the case, then the issue isn't what's best for those people in hell who rejected the salvation in Christ, who sinned against a holy God. The question is not what's better for them. The question is what's better. Do you get this? Like it's This is what we do all the time in our culture is we turn an issue into what's best, what's, quote, for me, fill in the blank for me. Is that better for me? Is this good for me? Is this helpful for me? Or we pick special groups and we say, is it better for them? Instead of just, is it better? Is it is it right? Is it righteous? Is it holy? And in that, I would answer, you know, God is good. Um, now, you may not understand hell. You may not appreciate hell. And that's totally understandable, Sophie. Like, you don't, I don't have to appreciate hell. I, I just need to trust that God's going to do what's right, whether I understand hell properly or not. He's going to do what's entirely right, and I will one day rejoice in it. I'll one day see clearly. You know, For instance, maybe there was somebody in prison, and you thought, I can't believe they got 10 years for that. That's horrible. But over time, you started to learn more about the crimes they committed, and you met the victims, and you saw the fallout, and you realized that what they did was much worse than you ever thought. And so what you thought was too extreme of a penalty, you now feel is entirely appropriate, maybe even too soft. What if sin's a lot worse than we think, and that the punishment of hell, we think, some of us think, are is, is too much? But we only think that because we have a bad evaluation of sin and righteousness and punishment. And one day when we stand before God in his holiness, we'll get it. We'll see things clearly for the, for the way they are. An example of this is Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he goes before God. And here he is. He's a prophet of God, right? Isaiah seems like a really solid guy. There's not much bad to say about Isaiah. He's one of the few guys in the Old Testament who you don't have like, what? why did you do that, you, you idiot? You know, like you don't have that. But Isaiah stands before God and the first thing he says, he sees the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord and I thought, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Um, and I live in the midst of people of unclean lips. He saw God in his holiness and all of a sudden had a brand new perspective on how bad he was and how bad his culture was. That will happen when we enter into glory. Wow, Lord. I knew I lived in a wicked culture, but I had no idea how bad it was because I never saw it in, in the light of day. This happens with, uh, with, with clothes, right? I'll have a stain on my clothes. And I walk in this, you know, not in, in the house, I can't tell, but I walk into sunlight and it's like, oh, it's super obvious now. It was always there. I just couldn't see it. I think you get my point. And I think that what you need to do is not feel okay about hell. I think you have to choose to trust that God will do what's right. And one day you'll understand it. All right. Number six, Leslie Wells says, this is number six here. 
Philippians 4.8 confuses me, she says, because so many true things are none of the other things on the list. A lot of truth is just the opposite. I read books about true things that are not the other things. Okay, let's let's look at Philippians 4.8 together, y'all. There we go. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Um, now, your suggestion is, hey, there's a conflict here, right? Because I'm supposed to think about what's true, but I'm also supposed to think about what's lovely. But hey, lots of true things aren't lovely. Lots of true things aren't pure. There's impure things happening. Those are tr It's true that those happen, but they're not pure. Lots of true things aren't just. Lots of true things aren't excellent. Lots of true things aren't worthy of praise. Right. Well, I think that you've got to take it as a whole. Think on whatsoever things are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, right? Worthy of praise. Think about those things. It doesn't mean it's the only things you can think about. Right? Paul thought about things like the division in the Corinthian church. That wasn't true and honor. It was true, but it wasn't honorable or just or pure or love lovely or commendable. But it wasn't his general preoccupation. I'll put it this way: um, uh, we we have like these. I'm going to give a weird analogy. I hope it helps. Um, when you go through life, you have your like emotional baseline. Some people's emotional baseline, like that is, there's no activity going on, there's nobody looking at them, there's nothing really happening, life just got quiet, and their emotional baseline is like generally irritated. I'm just always irritated, or a little bit upset, or a little bit depressed, a little bit down, a little bit bothered. Um, and I'm, I'm not ripping on people who have this emotional baseline, I'm using an analogy for a reason here. And so others, their emotional baseline is just kind of happy. Just a generally happy baseline, a generally happy, like when nothing else is happening, nothing's triggering things. It's just, I'm generally a pleasant person. I think that what Paul's discussing is going to affect that baseline to some degree. Because what happens is I'm, when I have no other reason to focus on anything in particular, I will tend towards thinking about good things. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to think about things that aren't true, that are honorable. They're, oh, that's honorable, but it's also not true. I'm not going to make a fantasy land in my head, but I'm going to generally think about what things are true. I, now, I use I use prayer time for this all the time. Uh, when I pray over meals, thank you, Lord, for this food, and thank you that you've blessed us, like that we're financially in a better place than than we've been in most of our lives, you know, that um, things are more stable for us, at least for us. Sorry for someone else who is in that same situation. That's where I've lived most of my life, but um, in those not stable situations. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful that my online ministry is reaching people that it's, it's like millions a, a, a month at this point. And I'm just amazed by this. And so I started thanking God for those things. Thank you that we, we, we have a healthy marriage that we've got a, you know, family that, that we connect with, that we know that we live near and stuff like that. And just thanking for random things. Thank you. My arms and legs work, Lord. These are true things that are praiseworthy, that are excellent, that are commendable. If you think about these things. Kind of when nothing else is filling your mind, generally positive things are what you gravitate towards. It will be a way of giving you the right perspective in life. It'll be a way of blessing you. It'll be a way of helping you to be a blessing to others because you're not just in poopy mode all the time. So um, the internet gives us the opportunity to always pursue what's true, <laughs> sometimes what's true, but whatever is 
inflammatory, whatever is clickbaity, whatever is, um, you know, hot gossip in the moment, whatever is scary, whatever is intimidating, whatever makes you mad at the groups you don't like. These are the things the internet gives us the opportunity to pursue at all hours of the day. Scripture is encouraging us to do other things, to focus on other stuff. And I think that's, that's the point. So I don't think there's an issue there with um, it conflicting with truth. All right, let's go to question number seven. And we have all 20 questions for you guys today. All 20 are loaded. This is from Pamela Schuett, who says, Hi, Mike. I read recently that the the idea that God the Son is eternally submissive to God the Father is heresy. It's Arianism. Is that true? Was Jesus only tempor temporarily submissive to God while on earth? Um, okay, so I I don't I don't personally hold to that. It's called eternal, eternal subordination. Um, but the idea is that Jesus is submissive at all times to the Father in, eternally, right? This has always been the case. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm, I'm saying I'm not convinced of it, okay? And I do think that Scripture seems to indicate that that submission is focused on, you know, in Hebrews it says that Jesus learned submission. He learned obedience, rather. Learned obedience. That this is, this is you know, when he comes onto earth you know, in human form, he chooses not to utilize so much of his authority and power that he has as God, and he walks as a servant, and he walks in perfect obedience. Do you translate that into an eternal subordination of the Son? I mean, it's possible, right? But I don't think it's the case. I'm not convinced it's the case. But the issue is here is, is it heresy? Now, I, I haven't finished my research on this. This actually weighs into the Women in Ministry series a lot, because one of the things that the... um. Uh, say like Amy Bird in particular, she's one egalitarian scholar. I think she's pretty sure she's a scholar who really hammers the nail and, and this claim that complementarians are, and this is how it sounds from her, that they're so committed to their wrong thinking about complementarian stuff that women's submission is a thing, at least in some contexts, not all contexts, that they're willing to throw the doctrine of the Trinity under the bus and to have heresy into their beliefs about the trinity in order to support it because people will say hey if the son can submit to the father then a wife can submit to her husband if the son's god this doesn't devalue him then the, the wife submitting to her husband doesn't devalue her that's the analogy that's used now i think that analogy can be used with the son and the father in a relationship while jesus is on earth but they'll push it back and say it's used for eternal subordination i think the response to this is that they have uh, confused Arianism, which is saying that Jesus is actually a lesser being. And I haven't finished my research on this, so I may amend this statement later if I if I include it in my series on women in ministry. Um, but the basic idea is Arianism is actually saying Jesus is like a created being. Not just that he behaves in an act of submission, but he's actually a created being that's, you know... Um, created by the father so subordination yielding and submitting is not the same thing as being a secondary creation these are very different claims and it seems as though it's very influential to say oh they're they're, they're creating heresy in the doctrine of the trinity um, i i don't think eternal subordination is actually that kind of arian heresy i think this is more of a of an inflammatory talking point from one side even if i don't agree with it now, I'll, I'll do more, hopefully, on that as time goes by in this series. I think I might try to include it in one of the videos. So forgive me if I don't have more to share on that. But let's go to the next question, which is from number number eight. 
the Christian metalhead says, would you please pray for my wife and I? I know that it's a vague request without much detail, but we're struggling in our marriage and prayers are much needed. Um, yeah, let's, let's all just take a moment and pray for them right now. Um, Father, we, we lift up this, this, this Christian man and his wife. We pray that you'd give them wisdom. Wisdom to each be able to forgive one another, to really let go and forgive each other for the, the, the hurt and the feelings and the, the pain that they feel that, that causes their behavior to change towards one another, if that's what's happening. Where a wound causes pulling away, causes distance, causes separation, and then causes more wounds. We pray that they be able to look at each other the way that Jesus looked at us while he was on the cross with grace and forgiveness and kindness and invitation into relationship, even in spite of pain and hurt and sin that had been done. We pray, Lord, that there be restoration, there be healing, that it would be not just because each gives 50%, but because each looks to you who gave 100% and then turns and does that for one another. We just, we ask that you bless them, Lord. And wherever one of them doesn't, wherever one of them continually fails, we pray the other one would have the work of your spirit in their life to extend grace in that in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, man, I, 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 I pray God blesses you. Uh, Biblical Watchman has a question. This is question number nine here. He says, I'm a full-time high school youth pastor whose role involves a lot of leadership and administrative duties. As a young person, I find it challenging and catch myself trying to overcompensate advice. Um, I think I'm, I'm trying to understand what your what your point is. And I hope I get you here. So I think what you're maybe suggesting is like, hey, I'm young, but I'm in I'm in leadership over people that are maybe older than me, and I feel like I'm overcompensating. And let me say this: that this is um, for what it's worth. This is something that I think, um, I if if you're experiencing what I did at a younger age, I think I understand it. Um. Don't do anything weird. This is my advice. Don't do anything weird because you're trying to deal with and fix how you feel about your role. Ignore yourself entirely and just do what you think is best to serve others. Let me say it again. Do not do weird things to help yourself feel better about your interaction with others. Just do whatever you think is best to serve others in the role that you have as a leader. So this means don't, don't say, Oh, I, I won't correct that person. Cause I just feel weird. Cause I'm young. Wait, that's all about you. Go and bring the correction if it's necessary and needed, or I won't let that person tell me what to do because they're older than me. And I feel awkward and I feel like they're challenging my leadership. Wait, would it, would it help others? If you let that person talk to you and correct you, then let them don't be weird about it. So this weirdness can, can, keep us from stepping out and being bold when we should, and it can keep us from listening to others or bringing others in. I think that for younger leaders, uh, one thing they can really do to help themselves is start to create a confidant in an older Christian who's been around for many more years than you, who you can tell, hey, here's what I'm dealing with. What do you think I should do? You think that's wise? You will be amazed at how quickly their wisdom just corrects little weird ways in which you get off because you're young. You just haven't, you know, when you have 10 more years experience, you're going to be much wiser than you are now. So I, I just say that. Yeah. Um, bring in a, a wise person to be a, a confidant, an older wise person or more to be confidants, not who you complain to, but who you open your heart up to. And you say, here's what I'm dealing with. And they can give you wisdom on those issues and don't do anything weird. It's not about you. 
I hope that helps, man. All right, let's go to question number 10. And this is from Psalms J. And he says, I am a 15-year-old that struggled with lust for such a long time and honestly don't know what to do anymore. It feels like I will never get out of the constant sin cycle. Could you please help me? Um, uh, you've struggled with lust for a long time and you don't know what to do anymore. Have you considered make, making extreme, taking extreme steps? And I don't mean cutting off body parts. Jesus gave an analogy, though, that some people misunderstand. I have a video on this, if you guys are interested, um, where we, I walked through this passage in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says, like, you know, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. Look, look, don't actually physically cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. I think they all knew Jesus was using hyperbole. The actual point of the passage is to say, Take extreme steps if you need to. Like, I struggle with lust. You know, I really have a hard time with it, you know, but I'm still watching this show that has nudity and I'm still following all these people on Instagram and I'm still, you know, going on TikTok every day. And, you're, and so my advice to you is what Scripture says when it says make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Provision's an interesting word because this, and let me, I got to bring you, let me actually get you this Scripture. Um... So you can actually see it for yourself. So Romans 13, verse 14. Make, uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is different than saying stop sinning. So what I'm suggesting to you, if you haven't already tried this, is to start focusing on not the final result of lust, where you step into, you know, these specific behaviors, but the beginning of lust, where you're making provision for it, where you're just creating opportunity in your life to put yourself in a scenario where you're likely to compromise, to open up a door where there's going to be a problem. What you should do is really seriously evaluate the first moment where lust began, it, like a little fire, it started to burn in your mind and in your heart. And you let it get bigger, and you let it get bigger, and you let it get bigger, and then you felt like you couldn't put it out. But you could have put it out when it was real small. You could have avoided the, the very thing that was the first step in your attitude, in your life, in your day that was heading towards lust. And this might just be how long you look at a girl around you. That it just starts to stir things up. Th these, are, these are things that I think um, you need to start being very, very self-aware of what makes provision for the flesh, for those sinful things, and avoid those things, even if it costs you because you're like not going to be on that social media anymore, whatever, fill in the blank. Be creative. Think to yourself, if I was really serious about overcoming this issue in my life, what would I do if I was really serious about it? And then take some of those steps. I hope that helps you, brother um, or sister. So doxological thinker number 11 over here says, uh, Doxological Thinker says, what biblical counsel would you give for dealing with toxic people, especially Christian family members you live with who are many times mentally and emotionally unhealthy around you? Thanks. What biblical counsel? I think one of the first things that I would remind myself if I was in your shoes is, um, in your anger, do not sin. Um, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The first temptation that you're going to have to deal with isn't at all about fixing them. This is the thing. We immediately jump to, they need to stop this. They should change. and They should change, right? I agree with you there. But when we jump there first, we make a huge mistake of not recognizing 
that you know flesh hooks flesh their carnal attitude is grabbing onto my carnality and we're both being carnal that's the fear that's the greatest thing even if you can't fix them at all even if you don't change any of their horrible behavior if you change yours you win because you were honoring Christ in the middle of that scenario. Jesus is like, hey, get the plank out of your eye, then you can see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye, which may or may not work, by the way, getting their speck out. But you, you can always get the plank out of your eye. Nothing ever stops you from that. So this is my, my counsel to you is, first things first, do not let their instability, their cruelty, their uh, bitterness, their malice, their pettiness, don't let any of those things pull you into those things. Walk godly and holy in the midst of no matter what they do. This is this is the hardest part. It's in marriage. It's in family. It's in interacting with society. It's not letting their sin lead to my sin. This is honoring Christ. Jesus, he didn't just live a human life without sinning. He lived, I mean, think of this, lived amongst sinners who kept sinning against him and he still never sinned. You know, flesh hooks flesh, man. That would be my biggest advice to you is that when you deal with toxic people, make sure you don't become the toxic one. Now, you may have Christian family members you live with, you said, who are mentally and emotionally unhealthy to be around. You can avoid. You still be compassionate, but you can create some distance for to, to get away from active sinful behaviors. That's entirely appropriate. But the major issue is don't fall into sin yourself. That's the only thing you can control. You can't control them. You can only control you. And if you accept that, you're well on your way to having victory in Christ in those areas. So question number 13, 13 right here, new question. Waving so Sarah can see it. She scrolls around to create timestamps. We do do, we do, do, we do, do, we do do timestamps every single Friday for the Q&A, which you can always check back a few hours after the stream and you will see timestamps below. You can bounce around, find just the questions you want. Good chance for me to remind you guys that on the website, BibleThinker.org, everything's free. Everything's free on the site. Um, and we have a we have two search features. One lets you just search videos in general. One's called the clip search feature. Now, if you type a term into the clip search feature or a word or a couple words, it will search for exactly a moment in a video where I've dealt with a particular question. Maybe you try to ask a question that hasn't gotten through the Q&A. That might be because I've already answered it. This is part 75, by the way. And we have it cataloged there and we can bring you to it using the clip search feature on BibleThinker.org. And it will only cost you nothing. All right, question number 13. Malcolm T says, and there aren't even ads on the site, guys. Like, It's not a money-making thing. I just want to bless you and minister to you. All right, Malcolm T says, uh, why would God give us the desires of our hearts, Psalm 37, 4? If the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. Great question. So Jeremiah 17, 9, we'll start with that. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, this is a huge warning to us. You can't follow your heart. It doesn't mean everything your heart thinks is, it just means your heart is deceitful. There's, there's lies that you tell yourself from within. And so you need God to what? To be testing us. He'll be the one who tests even our hearts. You can't just say, well, my heart's clean, therefore my life is good. Well, but your heart might be deceitful. God will one day search your heart and mind and perfectly test and know you. God will judge you. Um, and, you know, that's concerning, considering I have a deceitful heart. But then in Psalm 37, verse 4, we have delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But wait, my heart's deceitful. 
And my heart sometimes desires wicked things. But that's why we have a whole verse here. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. See, the, the person whose heart is delighted in maybe selfishness or carnality or wickedness and their heart is, is delighted in evil, they're not going to get the desires of their heart. But the one who delights themselves in the Lord, they will be given the desires of their heart. What's that? The Lord. I desire the Lord and his glory. I desire his, his will to come to pass. And I, I, yeah, I desire a good future. I desire a blessings in my life. I desire a, a beautiful and glorious eternity. But I desire that in the context of God and his glory. And so he's going to be giving me the desires of, the, of my heart there. I just have to wait on him. So there's a, um, there's, there's a sense in which as much as your desires are, are consistent with delighting in the Lord, God is going to grant those things. You just have to wait on him. So, yeah, um, I, I hope that helps. I, I mean, other people interpret Psalm 37, 4. He will give you the desires of your heart. They'll interpret this to mean God's actually going to plant desires into your heart. So it's not about him affirming everything your heart desires. It's like he'll give you specific things to desire that are for his will. I, I don't, now that, that works, that view theologically works. But I don't think that's what it means in this passage. Because this passage, um, let's just get context. Because if you want to think biblically, you got to read Whole chapters, not just verses, right? Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Okay, there's, there's people doing wicked. Hey, but there's a time coming when they will be they will be wiped out, right? They're not going to continue to be successful in it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You might have to add, eventually to this because it's not going to happen right away. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light, your justice as the noonday. Notice what he's bringing forth is not just your blessings, but it's righteousness and justice. Like you are doing the right thing. You're committing yourself to, to the Lord. You're delighting in God. And eventually he will fulfill those good things that you're waiting on and hoping for. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Don't worry about people who are successful at sin. Don't worry about it. God's going to deal with them in time. F refrain from anger and forsake wrath. I love this verse right here, verse 8. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. ESV's got a kind of a clunky sounding translation of that. Uh, say New King James has a different way. It says, do not fret and only causes harm. Hey, when you sit there and worry and you fret over all the things that God is going to deal with, you know he'll deal with them. You just have to wait. When you're ang anxious about those things, it just hurts you. It just causes harm. I like that. It's a good reminder. Worrying tends to, tend, worrying has a cost. Stressing out has a cost. We talk, we talk about medically all the time now. Well, high stress can, you know, shorten your lifespan and increase your heart issues and, and, and damage your, all sorts of things uh, in your body and in your life. Yeah, well, that's what Psalm 37 says. For the evil evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. There's a there's an eventual. God's going to give you the promises. This is to the Israelite, right? He's going to give you those things that he promised. You just have to wait on him. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draws the sword and bends their bows. 
to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those who, whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Right? God's going to put a stop to their schemes. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. That, that's the person who delights in God. I'd rather have a little bit as I'm honoring Christ and wait on him for future glory than have these pleasures now that, was, that, that come at the cost of ungodliness. Right? This is um, a lot of like political people and corporate corporations end up thriving not everyone but many of them end up thriving because they have ungodly practices like that's how they get success and the people who stay the course and do right end up with uh small less stuff right smaller tables with less food on them you know that kind of thing now for the arms of the wicked shall be broken but the lord upholds the righteous the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastors. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away, right? Pastures after it rains, super green and beautiful. And then a few days later, it's all dry. At least that's California. Uh, the wicked borrow, which is by the way, similar to Israel. The weather here is similar to there. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Anyway, you, you guys get the idea. You can read Psalm 37. I recommend you keep reading through. It's got 40 verses there for you, giving you context. Hope that answers your question. Let's go to number something. Number 14. Jeff Paitkow. This is number 14. I'm really bad at this. Um, and Jeff says, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there seems to be a lot of, of required sacrifices. How often were these sacrifices required and who was required to offer them? Was it just the heads of the households? Um, Jeff, this is actually a, there's there's a huge variety of these things in the New Testament. My phone keeps uh, buzzing. So, wow, a lot of people are trying to get a hold of me right now. Um, so, the, the variety of things that existed in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system is massive. You had some like regular sacrifices that were required like yearly, you know, so like the day of atonement, Passover, you had, in, and so Passover, you had sacrifices. Well, for day of atonement, you have a sacrifice. The high priest is the one who actually brings a sacrifice and kills it. Then for Passover, you, you're involved in the, in the slaying and then, the, and then the cooking of the animal as well, right? That's a, Passover is a very different sacrifice, different animal, different method. You have grain offerings, you know, you have peace offerings, you have sin offerings, you, you have different kinds of offerings. Some would be free will offerings. You could bring those at any time, any day. You bring a free will offering, you could bring that to the temple. And there were these different terms for offerings. Um, some offerings were more like related to fellowship and community and other offerings were more related to dealing with sin. And so I do have a video where I deal with some of this in detail and I will um, ask the mods to put it in the link. In my Jesus in the Old Testament series, which is my favorite series I've ever done because it's 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 a beautiful topic that's so rich and it just my heart you know our hearts burn within us as we as as he opens the scripture to us. So the that series I have a video mods if you can help me with this on the Levitical sacrifices and how the different sacrifices in Leviticus point to Christ in different ways. So if you guys could post that video in the live chat, I'll put a link in the video description down below after the stream for anybody who wants to watch it tons of variety in the sacrifices. There's no one answer to your question. How often were they required? Well, some were once a year, some once a month, some on specific occasions. You commit a certain sin, you bring a certain offering. Other ones were f free will offerings. You bring in whenever you want. So there's just a lot of variety that's there. Um, 
All right, question number 15. Amadeus says, I'm 31, uh, living with my unbelieving parents. They're pushing me to get a real job, but I feel like I should continue volunteering to keep a foundation alive that's barely holding on. Any biblical advice? Um, let me give you a biblical advice that is not going to be fun at all. I'm sorry, I don't, and I don't mean it to not be fun. Um, let me see if I can find this. This is 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I understand the desire to do ministry. But you're currently mooching off your parents. And you're, you are, you're a 31-year-old man who's requiring them to pay for for you, for your life, and they're not Christians. So this is like a tax of you're bringing. I'm I'm so sorry. Forgive me for bringing it this way, Amadeus. I I I love you, brother. <laughs> if your parents were supportive, if they were like, we want to support you. We think it's part of our calling to take care of you, so you can do this ministry thing is with all your time, and you can take care of this foundation that's that's just barely holding on. Then it would be totally appropriate then it would be fine because they're sponsoring you like a, like a missionary, right? Like doing ministry. But that's not the situation. Instead, they're unbelievers who don't want to keep paying for your way and you're sort of, you're kind of, you know, imposing on them, mooching off them so that you can then do ministries they don't believe in. I, I think that this is a situation where you got you to get a job. You got to get a job. And that ministry that's hanging on, that, that it can't be supported financially, you could volunteer with your extra time. I've done this, I've, much of my ministry life was just volunteering and not getting paid for things. And I'd work other jobs and volunteer over here. And that's fine, you know, I was a youth pastor for a season where I, I worked a full-time job and I was basically a full-time youth pastor, at least every waking moment that I wasn't in, you know, at work, I was doing ministry stuff. That's okay. But if that ministry folds because you're doing the right thing of working to make a living, to pay your own way, um, to not mooch off of others, then that's okay. That's okay. Every ministry doesn't have to always survive. There's every year, there's gonna be new ministries rising and old ones dying out because they existed for a season. There's a time where my ministry will no longer be active and that's okay. And you don't need to, um, you know, rob others to keep this ministry going who, who are people who are not supporting it. So my, I'm, I'm gonna say, I encourage you to get a job, and as much as you, you love this ministry, you can still volunteer with any extra time you have. But I think that they're, I think they're asking you to do the right thing, Amadeus. Yeah. So th there's my, that's my thoughts. Take it as counsel, one brother to another. I, even Paul the Apostle, um, there's a time in Corinth where he built tents when he could have been doing ministry. That means he, there were Bible studies he never taught. There was evangelism he never did because he was building tents to support his way. Because that support wasn't going to come through the local community. Because, he, well, he wasn't going to ask for it at that point for evangelism reasons. Um, and I think for the sake of you being a witness to your family, you should probably just get a job. Kara Hines has a question. This is question number 16. What is the joy of the Lord and how is it our strength? Um, let's bring up that scripture.
We all know the song. It's I get the song in my head like immediately. <laughs> uh, at any rate, the the scripture says, put it on your screen, Nehemiah eight ten. Then he said, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our God, to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the joy of the Lord in Nehemiah, we should always look at the immediate context. They're rebuilding the temple area. And the joy of the Lord is that God is going to bless them in their work. And though they've had lots of difficulties and lots of hardships, they should celebrate, have a feast day, and rejoice that God is, you know, who destroyed the temple, is once again looking to restore it. So the joy of the Lord in this case is God rebuilding the temple, God having favor on the people, God bringing them back in from captivity. This is like a specific historic moment of a specific, specific joy of the Lord. It's, the, you know, a debate is, is it God's joy or is it my joy in God? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And I tend to think of it as it's the Lord's joy. He, he's rejoicing to rebuild the people, to rebuild the temple, to bless Jerusalem again. And that that is something that is my strength. My strength is knowing that God is for me in this venture of building the temple in Nehemiah's case. How does that apply to my situation in my life today? Well, what is the, the Lord's joy? The joy that's set before Jesus on the cross is to buy a people for himself, that he would bring you to himself to know him forever, to wash you clean of, of your sins, and give you the Holy Spirit that you might have intimate relationship with God, to bless you with eternal, I mean, take this in, eternal life as a, an, a co-heir with Christ forever. I'm getting joy thinking about it, and that gives me strength to go through hardships I'm in today. That's the joy of the Lord that's giving me strength. He's rejoicing to bring me into his presence, give me eternal life and joy, eternal life and joy, resurrection from the dead, fellowship forever, perfectly without any sin, in great love and companionship with other people and with the Lord himself. And that gives me strength to go through whatever I have to go through today. That's how I take that. Let's talk about question number 17. 17. This is Porfirio who says, is it unbiblical? To ask for a refilling of the Holy Spirit. Don't we already have him living inside of us? I hear this a lot in my church and I don't know what to think of it. I guess the, the, the issue for me comes down to this, Porfirio, is am I saying, when I, when I say, Lord, fill me again, fill me more, fill me with the Holy Spirit, if I pray that way, am I, am I meaning to imply that I no longer have the Holy Spirit? That the Holy Spirit is not present with me right now? And if I am meaning to imply that, then I'm denying a very important teaching in Christianity that all believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Paul says to the Corinthians, because they were struggling with this to, well, in a different way, they were struggling with this, this belief. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? They were engaging in sin, not recognizing that they were filled with the Spirit already. But here's where I am okay with the phrase personally, right? And, and I think scripture seems to support this. There's several times in the book of Acts, while, while they're filled with the Spirit and they have the Holy Spirit at all times, where like Peter gets up and he's filled with the Spirit in that moment. Meaning he had the Holy Spirit, but there was a special anointing of the Spirit in that moment to do a particular ministry thing. That I, I am entirely supportive of. That there could be, while you have the Spirit at all times, you could be like, Lord, I pray for... Um, even more of your spirit working in us. Like, you know, here's Peter, for example. 
In Acts 2, they're filled with the Spirit. They speak in tongues. Does Peter have the Holy Spirit? Yeah, <laughs> he's got the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts, I think it's Acts 4, when they're threatened and told, we're, you know, we're going to beat you. Don't you speak about Jesus anymore? And, and Peter leads in a prayer. And his prayer is for courage that they would share the gospel and proclaim the name of Christ no matter what persecution came their way. And then it says that the Spirit filled them all. So wait, this is, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like Peter was filled with the Spirit, even though he already had the Spirit, which just means he received, in a sense, more empowerment from God, more help from God. That, I think, is appropriate. Um, you say your church does this a lot. You hear this a lot in your church. Well, what we don't see in the New Testament is that every prayer is like, oh, every time, oh, Lord, fill me with your spirit, fill me with your spirit, fill me with your spirit. Like I'm trying to create a momentary experience, but rather the desire is fill me with your spirit that I might honor you, that I might walk sinlessly, that I might, not that I'm actually sinless, but that's the goal, um, that I might, uh, you know, have fellowship with other believers in the spirit, right? This is putting on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to him who created him in righteousness and holiness. This is uh, to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're growing in our knowledge of Christ. So I think there's a good place for saying this as long as we don't misunderstand it and think it means that we don't have the Holy Spirit at some point. Number 18, Megan Harding has this question. After reading Daniel 10 and Revelation 1, I was wondering what the connection is between the descriptions of the visions. The description of Jesus in Revelation is so similar to the description given in Daniel 10. Um, just a moment. I'd like to read the descriptions, but I don't have the exact verses. And oh man, it's so bad at just scanning sometimes for these things. Um, anyway, I, I, I do think there's a lot of connection. I'll just, I'll have to answer this somewhat generally. I think that there's a lot of connection between Daniel and Revelation. Um, and that that connection is deliberate and intentional. But I also think differences are deliberate, deliberate and intentional. So that Revelation is connected to Daniel in some important ways. Very important ways because Daniel speaks a lot of the final coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom, right? That Jesus is like that stone that destroys the statue and fills the world. His kingdom fills the world. It's not just his first coming, it's his second coming. Jesus talks about this as well. He alludes to Daniel when he's standing before the high priest and the high priest is like, are you the Messiah? And he's like, yeah, you said it. <laughs> he's affirming, yes, I am. And you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with with uh, on, the, on the right hand of the power this is a reference to Daniel where this son of man figure is coming with divine authority and power. In fact, he seems divine in the passage and he's going to rule and judge the world. So Jesus connects his second coming to the book of Daniel. Revelation connects it to Daniel. But I would let the descriptions and the vision, I would not just say, hey, they're similar. I would also notice the differences because those differences sometimes tell you where there's an emphasis in Revelation, a different emphasis in Daniel. And those things can teach us as well. So just good Bible study thing. Put the, put the descriptions next to each other. And any element that's in one and not the other, there's probably a reason for that and something to learn through that. Let's go to question number 19. This is Brittany White who says, In the Bible, when Israel is mentioned in the, con in the context, is it referring to more of the people or the land, like the country? 
For example, Romans 11.26. All right, let's look at Romans 11.26. Uh, and this way, all and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I believe Romans 11, and I have a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. You guys can see it's available um, on YouTube or on BibleThinker.org. If you're interested in going through Romans with me verse by verse, I mean, that's such an awesome, awesome book. Um, here's a cool thing about Romans, side note. Romans is the one book in the New Testament written by an apostle who is like, hey, I can't visit you in person yet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my knowledge of the gospel itself in a letter for you. See, most of the other letters, like Ephesians, he's already been with the Ephesians, the Corinthians. He's already been there. There's so much groundwork he's already done for them, and now he's reminding them of things. But in Romans, he lays groundwork. So it's a unique book in the New Testament. It's the laying of the groundwork of our understanding of the gospel, theologically speaking. It's a brilliant theological document that walks through so much of this stuff. But in it, in Romans 11, he's like, hey, Israel's going to be saved. Israel's going to be saved. Now, the Bible, like you mentioned, Brittany, you mentioned this, the Bible talks about Israel sometimes talking about the nation, like the people, I should say, individuals who are part of Israel as a nation. And sometimes it talks about the land. It's the, it's the way we use America. Sometimes when I say America, I mean Americans. Sometimes when I say America, I mean the physical land. Like in America, there's a lot of McDonald's. Like I've, and there I mean the physical land. And so sometimes it, the Bible is the same way. It's like, hey, it's referring to the people or it's referring to the land. Um, the, those seem to be the two categories that I've, that I've noticed. People or the land are being referred to. Um, what's referred to more often? I mean, if I had to guess, I would think the people more often than the land. Um, that seems to be the case just off the top of my head. Just I'm guessing, I'm brainstorming with my whatever information I've got in my brain about the Bible there. In this case, in Romans 11, it's definitely talking about the people because he's, he's saying things in Romans. He's like, yeah, I just, you know, every not all who are Israel are of Israel. He, he's talking about individuals. He's like, just because you are part of the people doesn't mean you are actually in line with the faith that has been handed down through your through the forefathers. So th this is talking about individuals here, not the land itself. So Israel, and frequently in the Old Testament, Israel is being discussed as being gathered from faraway lands. I will send Israel out and I will gather Israel back. So it's the people that are being discussed and the nation of Israel is, in fact, as even in the term, the nation of Israel is talking about the land. So more often it's probably the, the people, I think. But, but each, each verse is going to give you context that will help you determine whether it's talking about the people or the land. And it should be obvious once you kind of consider the surrounding Verses like in Romans 11. Definitely talking about the people there. All right, last question today. This is question number 20. Ed Jeffries says, as a new Christian who was raised to follow science first, how can we extract the most knowledge out of the parts of the Old Testament that we can cannot fathom or science cannot yet answer? I'm going to read that question again because it's a little bit... I'm not sure if I'm fully understanding. As a new Christian who was raised to follow science first, Okay, so you were initially raised to follow science first. I, I guess I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that. Um, how can we extract the most knowledge out of the parts of the Old Testament that we cannot fathom or that science cannot yet answer? 
Ed, um, out of a fear for misunderstanding your question, I'm going to answer the, this question that I think I can understand. Um, what do I do where there's these, I'll call them gray areas between modern science and scripture? And I'll list a couple possible gray areas that we could be confronting as we read our Bibles. One gray area, at least for some people would consider this a gray area, is that science, the scientific method, method which is called methodological naturalism. And this is important that we understand this because we talk about science, but if we don't know what it is, the philosophy of science, and science does have a philosophy. I once had a, um, I was talking about this with someone online one time and the skeptic I was an atheist and he was like, there's no such thing as philosophy of science. You're such a moron. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, that's so funny because you could, you could go get your PhD in philosophy of science. Like everything has a philosophy. Philosophy is inescapable. It's everywhere. Okay. There's nobody on earth that doesn't do philosophy. It's just the question of whether you do it well or not. But the philosophy of science involves methodological naturalism. So this means in our method, in our scientific method, when we, when we conduct experiments, right? We have a hypothesis and then we have experiments to try to prove or disprove the hypothesis. We're going to assume naturalism is the case. That is only sort of natural and physical realities are engaging. So if like the pin falls over, we'll assume it was gravity or some other natural force. We will assume it was not a divine miraculous event that just happened. This is kind of important in the scientific endeavor because you're looking for natural laws. You're looking for the way things normally happen apart from miraculous things. So when you come across a miracle in scripture, you can make the mistake of thinking science has methodological naturalism to thinking science means all there is is naturalism. And so you'll see a miracle in the Bible and you'll go, oh, well, that must not have happened, right? Well, certainly um, an angel didn't come down and fight that battle for them because that would be miraculous. That would be beyond the natural world as we define it. And so we're going to reject that part because I have a scientific worldview. But, th but that's not a scientific worldview. Science isn't even a worldview. It's not a worldview, guys. Like if you, this is, this is an area where people are wildly confused. So naturalism, not methodological naturalism, right? But philosophical naturalism, that's a whole different category. That's a worldview, but that's not what science is based on. Science is like, hey, in our scientific method, we'll assume naturalism. But if, it, if we're testing a miracle, like a, a proper scientist would just say, a miracle simply can't be fully tested with scientific means because science has limited itself to only be able to detect natural things. This is an example of like a metal detector. A metal detector detects metal. Is there plastic in the ground? I don't know. My metal detector doesn't detect that. Is that a miracle? I don't know. My science doesn't detect that. That's, that's, in other words, you're not going to try to confirm or deny a miracle for the most part with science. You can confirm certain things. We could go to Jericho in, in the science of archaeology and we could ask if the walls were destroyed in an event that looks similar to what we read about in the uh, Bible. But what we can't do is say, did God cause those walls? Science just becomes blind and it doesn't have any comments to make about what God does. It doesn't say God didn't do it. That's dumb that is that is philosophical beliefs not methodological naturalism that science says i hope this makes sense and i'm just just making everybody like what is he talking about these things are important i think that um uh, in fact lots of books like say uh, craig keener's book on miracles or um gary habermas's work on miracles they start with discussions like this to help clear the air so if your thing is 
as a, a person who follows the science, when I look at the Bible, I go, should I believe that happened? Can I scientifically prove it? And I'm like, I don't think you know how science works. Science isn't, I don't believe it unless I can scientifically prove it. Science is just one way of demonstrating the truth of things. It doesn't deny everything else that's outside. It's like a metal detector being used to tell you that only metal exists. No, you're using it wrong. And that's what, where people go wrong with science. Another area where a gray area is caused is um, uh, thinking that we need outside confirmation for every event in the Bible. Right, so outside, con not just confirmation, outside confirmation. So let's let's say this. We have the Bible that talks about the exodus of the, the Israelites from Egypt. Let's suppose that there's no other archaeological evidence to support it. I think there is, actually. But let's suppose there's none, as some have claimed. What if you found an ancient document that was like 3,000 years old that said that there was this group of Israelites who left Egypt who were once enslaved? And this was outside the Bible. It's just an, an ancient document from somewhere else. You would immediately, everyone would go, wow, I guess it probably happened. Why? Well, I mean, how do you know this guy didn't lie? How do you know this document wasn't just made up? Yeah, but it's it's an ancient document historically speaking. You know, you, you give a lot of weight to ancient documents that describe events happening in their contemporary times. Yeah, but that's what the Bible is. <laughs> the Bible is just that. It is giving an account. Now, you might discount it and say, yeah, well, I don't believe it. Not because it says they were enslaved and they left, but because it says there were miracles involved. Okay, right. But just you're just assuming philosophical naturalism and you don't believe that God exists or that if he does exist, that he could or would perform a miracle which seems weird. You're not actually using science here. This is using philosophy to try to fight against the idea of a miracle. So don't pretend it's your scientific worldview. This is not, this is a, um, uh, in a sense, I have a, a, a scientific understanding of things, but I also understand the limits of science. I realize it's not a worldview. The minute science tries to become a worldview, it's like saying I have a metal detector worldview. Well, everything's metal. Anyway, I don't know if this helps you, man. Let me read your question one more time and see if I've answered it. As a new Christian who was raised to follow science first, how can we extract the most knowledge out of the parts of the Old Testament that we cannot fathom slash science cannot yet answer? I think my final answer to you is this, Ed. Um, is the Bible inspired by God or not? This is a key question. I believe the Bible is inspired. I believe it partly probably just the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I also think it's proven because prophecy that has then been fulfilled. And I have lots of videos on this in my Evidence for the Bible series. You guys can check out online. Just type Mike Winger Evidence for the Bible somewhere and you'll find it. Um, that I have tons of examples of specific prophecies that have then come to pass. I think that Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection also proves that the Bible is inspired. And I have content on that. I hope whoever's ringing my doorbell goes away. Um, all those things are telling me that the Bible is God's inspired word. Once you believe that, what you have is God himself telling you these things took place. This is how they happened. It's unreasonable to disbelieve God himself when he speaks and claim that that's because you're scientific. I think the question is of, of how do I understand some of these stories? Is that a miracle or was that a natural event? Is that allegorical or was that literal? Is that a metaphor or is it a historical thing? Um, I think those are good and legit questions that have to be answered through careful Bible study. But I'm going to believe it because God has given me that information. And that seems very rational to me. The old phrase, the Bible says that I believe it. That's a pretty good idea. <laughs> as much as it's hated by many. Um, so yeah, I think that you, 
should remind yourself, Ed, of this. You may have to give up on the idea that people um, are, are going to respect you for your Christian beliefs. And once you don't care whether they respect you or not, you just care what's true. That will help you clear some of the confusion that happens on these issues. I hope that that helps you guys. Thank you so much for joining. I'll be with you on Monday to talk about the silver bullet passage. This is the passage that egalitarians use as the ultimate silver bullet to prove that um, every verse that complementarians use, they've been interpreting it wrong. And it's Galatians 3.28, that there's no male or female in Christ. I'm going to be dealing with that verse coming up, and I'll see you guys then. Thanks so much. Nice to be out of uh, YouTube jail and with you guys again. God bless you.